when it's the right combination of people, isn't it fun and relaxing to spend your weekends with your friends and family sharing good food and good company? The conversations are stimulating. And there's a level of comfort that we look forward to at the end of a long week. Would you willingly choose to trade that feeling? Can you imagine yourself sharing your home, your food, your energy, your comfort zone with persons who are going through severe financial difficulties or with people with tremendously different lifestyles from your own? Would it make a difference if it was Jesus who was asking us to make these uncomfortable invitations? Jesus used his own party invitation to unnerve the comfortable club atmosphere around the table by giving his unsolicited advice. In Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. Now at this particular time, Jesus wasn't yet being persecuted and rejected by the, by the Jewish leaders. Instead, he was a desired guest at parties. And at the beginning of Luke 14, the story tells us that the one who had invited him was a leader of the Pharisees and as such would have been financially stable for his time as well as a popular and important townsperson. In the society of that day, a Pharisee would have been an academic leader and a social political leader. So the high society friends of that day were getting together and they wanted to be amused by Jesus and his novel teachings. Also, throughout the stories of the Gospel of Luke, we become conscious of how rigidly people observed where one ate, with whom one ate, whether one was washing properly before the meal, and where one sat down to eat. But instead of relaxing at the table, Jesus maintained the dedication to making his life a tangible parable about how to live in this world. And upon entering the party, Jesus used that opportunity to dispense his insightful critiques. He classified four groups of people that you do not invite to eat. Precisely the people most often invited, your friends, your sisters, your brothers, your extended relatives, and your rich neighbors. How would it feel if a first-time guest to your home came in the door and immediately started saying, oh, I would have chosen a different color for that wall. You call this a dining table? Ooh, I, I don't like vegetables. How rude. This approach that Jesus was taking may have been may have seemed just as rude and unwarranted to his hosts. Why would Jesus do something like this? He specifically spoke these words because he was genuinely concerned for the personal growth and human potential of each person. Jesus addressed this advice to his host as a heartfelt warning and reminder. Once you are comfortable at the visible and popular center of any group, or once you have reached the top of your social or professional circles of influence, you have too much to prove and too much to protect. Growth or real change in your life is unlikely. 
you will become a defender of the status quo because it appears to be working for you. As Thomas Merton said, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find, once they reach the top, that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. So Jesus tells his listeners what not to do. Then he shifts to his recommendation. Here is what you do. Verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Do you know anyone in your life that God may be suggesting that you invite to spend some time with you? How do you find someone like this to invite? Is this talking about total strangers or people that we already know who live in impoverished circumstances? In Luke 15, Jesus is angrily accused by the same safe, self-serving, previously generous group of people that had invited him to dinner. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So it looks like everyone knew the life condition of the people that Jesus received for dinner. And what many of us are learning in life is that Jesus did not call his followers to eat with the poor and with those who are in pain only for us to be helpful to them. The invitation to solidarity with the realities of life is for our own transformation. True freedom in this world can be found at the bottom and at the edges of life. Everywhere else, there's too much to protect. The promotion of the image we want others to see and the ever-present fear of losing it all will end up controlling your life. Jesus insists that living how God intended us to live, genuinely understanding ourselves and learning to love each other well only happens near the poor in solidarity with their suffering. And the word poor here thus is interpreted and amplified because Jesus showed concern above all for any division of persons customarily identified by their dishonorable status and their everyday exclusion. We can find sympathy and sympathetic feelings for those who are worse off than we are. However, we invariably regress back again into business as usual. Learning the wisdom of what Jesus is trying to teach here may require serious changes in our paradigms and perspectives. And Jesus offers a rationale for his strong advice in verse 14. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What exactly is Jesus promising here? Who gives us the blessing? Are these deferred rewards? Are we repaid by God since they cannot repay us? I cannot speak to the resurrection and what God will repay you someday. You will have to take that up with God. However, have any of you noticed that it is often only after the fact that we realize how those we are serving have helped us in ways that we never knew we needed? Jesus teaches us to invite the poor to eat with us rather than only our friends and socioeconomic circle because the blessing comes from us serving people who cannot pay us back. Have you ever received something from someone and you knew that you could never pay them back? Have you ever been forgiven when you didn't deserve it? Have you experienced the feeling 
of knowing that someone has been undeservedly generous with you. The blessing seems to go both ways. The ones we think we are saving end up saving us. And in this relational movement, the very meaning of salvation is redefined. When outcasts are accepted as our equals, we overthrow the very practices and standards of discrimination. Could this be a call from Jesus to live by God's kingdom standards now? This understanding can apply to many areas of thought and practice in our lives. Are we willing to be open and welcoming to those who are most vulnerable and who need help and support? Are there any individuals or are there any particular groups of people that you might be aware of right now that God is impressing upon your heart? As you reflect on that, listen to a story from Dr. Carlos Parra. He has experienced life from the perspective of someone who was invited to the table even though at first it didn't seem like he belonged there. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Oh, no, I can't, I guess. What a privilege is to speak with you this morning. I'll step away from it for a little bit. It's an opportunity that is provided for me to share a perspective of my life. And I say that perspective because we all share glimpses, moments, experiences and thoughts and emotions. Today I'm sharing a perspective about how I perceived my path with the Lord and how I sense He's guided me to be here with you this morning. However, in my mind, this is clear only uh, through the experience or my experience of migration. This experience is not a smooth one. It's filled with political issues, with language barriers, with educational hopes unfulfilled in 1978, and very evident upon my arrival to New York City in 1979. I am the oldest of four, and I migrated from the country of Colombia with two O's, Colombia. As a young man, shortly after finishing high school, my first year at the university there, back in Colombia, was filled with the political conflict the country was going through at the time. I quickly saw myself forced to leave the university. Also, not just the university, but my home and my family and all that it was familiar to me. In the picture you see my parents, my sister, and my two younger brothers. I left my city, Cali, Colombia, one morning at 85 degrees and arrived to the Kennedy Airport in New York City later that evening 
with a bag filled of, with hope and a few garments to a 28 degree weather in a winter day in December of 1979. You see, I wasn't much of a believer in the sense of what, in general, a Christian is perceived to be. In fact, I didn't even know what or who Seventh-day Adventists were. Not in 1979. Religion, for me, was a sort of a parochial mindset. I was an urbanite, was not willing to take that. I am from the city of Cali, as I mentioned, in the southwest region of Colombia. That gives you a little bit of a perspective. Does any Colombians here? Probably not. We're very few in this area of the country, I think. It's a place known as people who are very friendly, lively, noisy, and enjoy life in whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in. I don't know if you follow, but a couple of years, a few years ago, we were like number one in the world, the most happiest of people. I don't know what that means. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, my arrival to New York City was not circumstantial, but was highly providential. You see, it wasn't the Big Apple that the Lord found me. As I um, personally struggle with religious perspectives and wrestle with my understanding of daily religious practices. At first, in a public library in Queens, New York, where I was searching through Jewish writings and I found the Sabbath. Then in a Catholic church where I took my Bible and I went and spoke to the priest after the service, well, the mass, and I asked them, can you clarify this for me about the Sabbath? And he looked at me as he was backing up and he says, follow what that says in the Bible. And he walked away. At the moment, I didn't understand that. Now I appreciate it. And finally, with the spirit of prophecy. I'll tell you about that in a second. The spirit of prophecy. Between 1979 and 1985, I worked in New York City. First, in a factory in the garment industry, where I learned to speak Italian with immigrants from Italy before I could speak English. Then, a series of jobs. 
limousine driving in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Took many people to Atlantic City all the time, to the Soho area all the time. 16-hour shifts. Moving company, I did that too. Salesperson. And even as a busboy at the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan. You see, I didn't have the appropriate documents to hold a job for a long time. Not even the right name, but that's another sermon. <laughs> Eventually, lost all my jobs, and after a visit to a, yeah, I guess, a herbalist doctor, where a glimpse of God shine on me, prompting me to, to, to search, yeah, I found myself at the public library in Queens that I mentioned earlier. Eventually, I had the opportunity to visit a Seventh-day Adventist church on a Sabbath day at noon after asking my friends, find a church that is open on a Saturday. And they say, are you becoming Jewish? <laughs> anyway, you can imagine my surprise seeing everyone mingling and sharing on the way out of the service, which by the way, I identified as a Catholic mass service. Everybody leaving at noon, okay, the mass is over. What followed, I did not plan though, nor I had any idea. However, the Lord had it in his mind to keep me there, and I did. I had accepted the message even before knowing there was a Seventh-day Adventist church in town. I simply didn't know it. And this is what I mentioned about the spirit of prophecy. When I visited the herbalist doctor, I was waiting for my recipe, my, uh, my prescription, and I saw a book at the table. And that book was The Desire of Ages. I didn't know what that was. But it caught my attention because of the narrative. The very first in my life, I was a university student, but it was the very first time in my life that I saw a biography of that magnitude. And, of course, a, as I was reading, waiting, there was an older lady who came and sat next to me, and she said, do you like that book? I said, well, I understand it. It's a very interesting book. I said, well, that's one of five. Oh, really? What are those books? Well, to make it short, she facilitated these five books. I think you know them, right? Good. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, at the moment, I didn't know, but she trusted me to keep those books hardcover. Any Cole Porters here? 
that's expensive series, isn't it? And she said, go ahead, take it. Just read them. And I read each one of those books on the train for the next few months from Queens to Manhattan. And uh, I found out about all these truths. I didn't know about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So that's what I meant when I said I had already accepted the message, but I didn't know about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, I got baptized, kept the Sabbath while managing a store in the retail business in the World Trade Center towers. I worked there in the uh, WTC4 before it went down. However, shortly after that, I joined the United States Air Force to become a paramedic later in a military base hospital in Utah, where I met my wife the first Sabbath. I attended the local church in Salt Lake City. My wife is sitting there. It was also there where our two older sons were born. Our two older sons were born in Utah. And it was there we did church planting, where current Spanish-speaking churches are today in the area of Salt Lake City. After I got baptized, I immediately called my mother, who was still back in Colombia. And I spoke with her a few times, encouraging her to attend a Seventh-day Adventist church in the city of Cali. Any, just, just go find a Seventh-day Adventist church. I asked her to look in the yellow pages. You remember those, right? <laughs> we prayed together a few times, too, on the phone. I knew we were Catholic, and my words were to be found very sensitive. However, and to my surprise, my mother went to visit a Seventh-day Adventist church in Colombia, in Cali, at my request on a Wednesday evening. You know what that means, right? But she never left. She got baptized. And then my sister, my brother, my uncles, Years later, I would attend my father's baptism on a Sabbath morning in New York City. Today, most of my family is Seventh-day Adventist, along with all of those who joined us as spouses. However, today, we are scattered in various countries, including various states in the United States. While in Utah, my wife and I, Beverly, 
We pursue a, our college education. After obtaining a Master's of Arts from the University of Utah as a full-time, first-generation student, married with two children, while also a full-time, active-duty United States Air Force, we left for North Carolina for me to pursue and obtain a PhD degree from Duke University. It was, it was also in Durham, North Carolina. That picture you see there is from my undergrad uh, graduation. I don't have pictures for the other graduations. Especially from my doctoral, I do not have a picture because I was not in my graduation. It was the very same day that my brother got baptized. So, yeah. I had to make a decision. So while I was there in North Carolina, we also did church planting while being a student at Duke. It was at the Five Oaks, Five Oaks Church where the first Spanish-speaking attendees met and later became the Spanish-speaking congregations that currently stand today. It was also there where I was ordained as a deacon and then as an elder. Later, we moved to Tucson, Arizona. As my wife pursued graduate school at the University of Arizona. Meantime, I taught in college and again work in church planning with Spanish-speaking group meeting in a local school gym. I remember working with Pastor Chota, maybe some of you know him, whom I met again years later here at the La Sierra University Church when we arrived in the summer of 2015. Soon after my teaching tenure in Arizona, I received a call to teach in Tennessee, a Southern Adventist University, where we were for the next 15 years. In Tennessee, we were blessed with our third son, whom arrived just as his two older brothers prepared to attend college. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I love that boy. He's there, he's smiling right there. Joey, Jose. <laughs> he attends the the Sierra Academy. So, again, there were also there, you know, in, 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 in Tennessee, we worked with church planting among the Spanish-speaking community in nearby Cleveland and Chattanooga. Today, there are a number of established churches in various small groups meeting regularly there. Chatsworth, Cleveland, other places stemming from the church in Cleveland. Well, in 2014, I received the invitation to come to La Sierra University. 
to direct the Department of World Languages. A call that I later accepted and began our journey here in this sanctuary, the summer of 2015. What else can I say? I can only praise God for guiding me you know, in my path, for placing me where I have been, and for doing what he has placed on my path to do. Today, I glean from all my experiences to enrich the conversations I have with my students in the courses and that I offer here at La Sierra University. Thank you. The city and the people of New York opened their arms and received a young man that came with nothing. And as you shared in your story, they gave a lot to you that you knew you would never be able to pay back. But throughout your life, Dr. Parra, we are so grateful that you have taken those blessings and you've paid it forward in your service as a paramedic, in the young minds that you have shaped and, and molded as you've taught, in your own family as you've given back to them. And one day, according to Jesus, it will be payback time. You will get repaid for those that you have served that couldn't pay you back. May God inspire each one of us to think clearly about who it is that God wants us to invite to spend some time with us. <laughs> 